ever a choice of the nation Our chieftain so brave and so true And we'll go for the great reformation For Lincoln and Liberty too We'll go for the son of Kentucky The hero who drew him through The pride of the sucker so lucky but enough that all who believe that our fathers who framed the government under which we live understood this question just as well and even better than we do now speak as they speak and act as they acted upon it. This is all Republicans ask, all Republicans desire in relation to slavery. As those fathers marked it, so be it again marked. Not as an evil to be extended, but to be tolerated and protected only because of and so far as the actual presence among us makes that toleration and protection a necessity. Let all the guarantees those fathers gave it be, not grudgingly, but fully and faithfully maintained. All right, welcome back to the American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. As the name of the podcast implies, my goal here is to, to go through American Writers uh, a bit at a time, 100 pages to be precise. I use the Library of America as my source material. So if you have any of those volumes of the Library of America and you want me to look at them or consider them, let me know. Um, I'm coming to the end of this series on American political writing, and I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do next. I want to challenge myself, but I also don't want to you know, get bogged down in something that I really don't like. So I don't know. I have some thoughts, but I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. So if you have any suggestions, let me, let me know. As long as it's in the Library of America, I should be able to um, take it on. Well, anyways, uh, we're currently looking at the writings of Abraham Lincoln, um, and we're to the stage where we can start to look at these year by year. I mean, the second volume of the collections, writings of the, the collections of, of Lincoln's speeches and writings, mostly letters and speeches is, is what we have here. Um, obviously, um, in the 1860s, the biggest issue is the Civil War, right? So we're, we're entering into to Lincoln's Civil War writings. Now, in 1860, uh, a lot of important things happen. There's not that much to talk about in terms of writing because he was... Um, in those days, uh, politicians running for president didn't really campaign. He, he gave a few speeches and addresses, but there wasn't like the campaigning like we have today. And even his public statements are fairly disciplined. So there's a lot of repetition here. Um, some of the letters are, are, are rather fascinating. The focus of this episode will be the Cooper Union speech, though, which he actually gave before he was nominated. It was really a key speech in elevating Lincoln to national prominence. Um, and, and prominence in the Republican Party. That and the publication of Lincoln-Douglas debates together kind of made him an attractive candidate. Um, then we got his campaign and his election. And, and so we'll, we'll see what there is to talk about um, in this section. And then starting in the next episode, we'll be looking at the war. And so we'll have five episodes, one for each year, covering the war. The last one, there's not that much to say for 1865. It's like an inaugural, of course, but... Uh, we'll we'll kind of have some time then to kind of put a, a nice bow tie around this series of on Lincoln and in general this series on American political writing, which we began all the way back when we looked at at, at Thomas Jefferson. Well, I, I want to start here 
talk a little bit what just what happened, what was going on in Lincoln's life in 1860. Obviously, the campaign that's going to be the main thing. But I, I do want to talk about this election uh, and and make sure we understand it <clears throat> as well. Um, so Lincoln traveled to the East in, in 1860, part of his kind of rise to national prominence in the Republican Party. We saw how in 1859 he gave a lot of speeches in the Midwest, uh, Wisconsin, Ohio, that, you know, that area. I think it was a couple in, in, in Ohio, really supporting Republican candidates. Um, in 1860, he goes to the East. So he has more of a national um, focus. And I think the Republican Party was pretty interested in expanding its its electoral map after the election of 1856, where they won some Midwest states, but, but obviously not enough to be competitive nationally, but they thought they could be, but if they could really ex extend to the West or to the East. So Lincoln's part of that, that push to the East. And he gives a couple important speeches. This collection has two of them, the Cooper Union speech in New York and one in New Haven. I'm not, they're, they kind of overlap and the Cooper Union is a better speech. So that's the one we'll talk about in this episode. Uh, we'll get to that. Um, uh, Lincoln also published the Lincoln-Douglas debate, something he had wanted to do since the, since the previous year. Finally, they get published. And this, so this is going to be what Southerners read when they, they hear about this guy, Abraham Lincoln, and they start to make a decision that they cannot tolerate uh, not just a Republican presidency, but this particular Republican as, as a president. And that, that's key to uh, secession. Um, he wins the nomination in on May 18th. And of course, in these days, he didn't have primary so basically the party bosses chose lincoln you know a moderate republican was was the goal who had some you know a good speaker a good writer someone who uh was very clear on the issue one of the key issues that the republican party cared about and, and had kind of built his his national career on that on that issue of slavery in the territories um, he, he accepts the Republican platform, which includes not just slavery in the territory, but a few other important issues. So we don't want to just have, we don't want to just talk about Lincoln as, as related to the slavery issue, although that's probably the, it's, it's really his most important thing um, in, in his historical legacy. But the Republican platform had, had, had um, various things. Um, this is from the chronology at the end of the volume, uh, our Lincoln chronology. Uh, studies, this is Lincoln Studies platform, which opposes the extension of slavery, vaguely endorses a protective tariff policy and calls for homestead legislation, internal improvements, and a transcontinental railroad. So this is this is kind of like a lot of Whiggish platforms, things that Lincoln you know supported as a Whig, so he's going to support them as Republican too. But um, you know these are important achievements of the Republican Party and they're going to really be influential in the Reconstruction era, especially in the South when you had recon, you know, Reconstruction governments in the South, often with a lot of leadership from f free former slaves who, you know, building schools, internal improvements, kind of industrial, you know, pushing for industrialization. So that, that's, that's going to be part of, of the Republican Party's kind of agenda after the Civil War. Um, of course, the Transcontinental Railroad is is pushed and completed during the during during the war, and the Homestead Act is passed, I think, in eighteen sixty three. So these are major achievements, um, and they were in the platform. So then, um, of course, he wins the election. He wins the election in November. Um, so let's break this down, this election down. If you're not familiar with it, haven't studied it before, um, four people ran for this election. You had uh, Abraham Lincoln, the Republican candidate. You had John Breckinridge. He was the Southern Democrat, so he's the, you know, 
pro-slavery in the territories, you know, the most aggressive for pushing the boundaries of slavery and the most aggressively pro-slavery candidate of those running. So that's the Southern Democrat. Now, those positions were intolerable to the Northern Democrat, Northern Democrats. So a Northern Democratic Party branched off and ran their own candidate. So you had Stephen Douglas, uh, Stephen, you know, he of the Lincoln-Douglas debates ran. And then you had a, 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 the Constitutional Unionists, which is basically a, a compromise party that's trying to kind of a third party. So you have a, the Democratic Party split, the Republican Party, and then you have this Constitutional Unionist movement, which is basically trying to establish a constitutional compromise. Um, you know, I think their big thing was like a constitutional amendment, maybe protecting slavery where it exists or something like that. Um, to complicate this a little bit, in some states you had fusion Democratic parties running, like in New Jersey. And, and they actually won the majority of the vote in New Jersey, although Lincoln got mostly electoral votes for New Jersey. So I'm not quite sure how that all worked out, but you had uh, some fusion Democratic um, candidates running as well um, in some northern states. So basically Breckenridge is, is going to get all the votes in the south. Um, Lincoln's not even on the ballot in the south. So in the south, it's between like John Bell, the Constitutional Unionist, and Breckenridge. And Breckenridge just sort of runs away with, with it. Um, so... Now, you think of this and you say, well, you have these third parties. You have this broken Democratic Party. That's why Lincoln won. And, and that's what I want to talk about. Lincoln won straight up this election. Uh, even if you were to add up all the electoral votes, Lincoln won, right? It wasn't, he didn't get a plurality. He had a majority, which, of course, is, is, is what you need, right? Otherwise, it gets shipped to the House of Representatives, and this election certainly didn't. So he had the, the majority of electoral votes. Okay, so let's break down the, the totals. Lincoln got 180 electoral votes with 40% of the popular vote. John Breckinridge, the Southern Democrat, was the got 18% uh, of the vote, but 72 electoral votes, right? So he, you know, of course, most people don't live in the South at this time. It's, what, 32 million Americans, 4 million are slaves who don't vote. And, and I, I think the Southern population was like 9 million, I want to say. Let me let me do yeah, I looked it up. It, it was nine million, but four million were slaves, right? So there's only only five million voters in the in the South, and of course many of those were women, right? So you know, who couldn't vote either. So only twelve percent, no, sorry, eighteen percent of the vote in uh, the South for the Southern Democrats. Then you have uh, John Bell, uh, the Constitutional Unionist. Uh, they got about 13% of the vote, 12.6, with 39 electoral votes. They got most of their electoral votes in the border states. Um, sorry, that 9 million is, is not for the slave states overall. It's the, con, con, well, the Confederacy was about 9 million. Um, so it's, you know, maybe 3.5 million were slaves. I'm not sure how many slaves were in the border states, just off the top of my head. But uh, the Council of Unions got their support from the border states, mostly. Um, then you have Stephen Douglas the Northern Democratic candidate who got 30% of the vote. All right. So a lot of the non-Republican vote in the North went to Stephen Douglas, but he only won 12 electoral votes overall. So Douglas got uh, Missouri and, and three electoral votes in New Jersey. Bell won Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Right. And the Southern Democrats won all the other slave states. And uh, the Republicans won all the all the free states, all the states that did not have slavery, um, including the District of Columbia. Yeah, 
that, that's what it looks like. That's what the map looks like. Now, you might be saying, well, Lincoln still only had a plurality, right? So what if the Democratic Party wasn't, was fused? What if the Democratic Party didn't run two candidates, a Northern and a Southern Democrat? What if, or there wasn't the Constitutional Unionist? What if, were these spoilers? That's the question. Were, was, was Douglas or Bell a spoiler candidate, right? That could have prevented Lincoln from winning the presidency. That is not the case. Um, if you look at the statewide totals, the state-by-state state totals, only in three states did where Lincoln won the electoral, won electoral votes did he not win um, a majority of the vote. Remember, it's a winner-take-all system in the Electoral College. Um, so in California, he won 32% of the vote. So he got uh, a plurality. He got the four electoral votes for California, though. In those days, California was only four electoral votes. Imagine that. Now, in New Jersey, the electoral votes were split. Four went to Lincoln and three to Douglas through the Fusion Democratic Party. But there, Lincoln only won 48% of the vote. I don't quite know why he, only, he didn't only get three, but it doesn't matter in the final totals and then in Oregon uh, he won 36 percent um, but again it was a the other vote was split between like Douglas and, and and Bell so he got he got all three of those votes but it's only you know had had the Democrats won run, just run like Douglas nationally right he would have won all the southern states and um, we presume uh, you could guess plus all those border states and if bell didn't run right if plus he would have won california new jersey and oregon let's say that happened right the the the, the election totals and electoral votes would have been 169 to 134 for lincoln so lincoln still would have won so if you just take the states you want a clear majority in and just gave him those electoral votes he still would have won the presidency so that's that's the election of 1860 in a nutshell lincoln won without a single southern vote he wasn't even on the ballot in a lot of southern states and he won decisively uh, the presidency in, you know, under the Electoral College. So, um, you know, the kind of the hypothetical had all the non-Lincoln votes been under one candidate, that would have been 60% of the votes, but it still wouldn't have been a majority uh, in the Electoral College. So that, that's just, that's of course how the American system works. Popular vote doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, but that's just, just to get that out of the way. The Lincoln clearly won, the Republican Party clearly won um, the Electoral College uh, you know, it wasn't split. There wasn't a spoiler factor. All right, moving on to the documents. Um, again, there's, there's not that many to, to talk about. And we sort of know Lincoln's positions on, on slavery in the territories. But the Cooper Union speech is just so good. It's, it's really a great speech. And if you just had to read one Lincoln speech, you know, I would, I would, this was the one I would say to read, the, the, or the Cooper Institute. Right? This, this was in New York City. So it's, it was given on February 27th, 1860. And let's just go through this blow by blow. It's a really great speech, though. And there's a really nice um, reenactment of this. On, on, it's available on YouTube. It's um, the, the DA from Law and Order, it's, uh, Sam Waterston or Waterstone, whatever his name is. He uh, recites this. And he does an okay job. He does a pretty good job reciting this, especially, especially in the second half. He really shows the kind of the buildup of the themes of the speech because it starts out a pretty dry speech in a lot of ways, but it ends up really powerful, I think. <clears throat> even though I think the beginning part, even though it is, it does kind of come off as a research paper at times, it, it also makes some very powerful points. He says something he's been dancing around for a long time, even talking about a little bit in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, but here he really 
kind of demonstrates it with overwhelming evidence to his to his listeners. And what is that? And that's what, let's start with that. Uh, he starts with this argument that the founders believed conclusively, you know, pretty much all of them. He wants to say, oh, the people who wrote the Constitution, the signers of the Declaration of Independence, you know, whatever, you know, he, I think he's talking mostly about the, the people who wrote the Constitution. Um, he calls them the 23. Um, and the, the, the 23 meaning these are the people who were at the Constitutional Convention who were later in, had a voting record in Congress that he could compare to. Right? These are the 23. And he calls them the 23 throughout the speech. And what he wants to demonstrate here is that these 23 believed in basically two things. One is that the, that the government, the Congress, had a right to regulate slavery in the territories and regulate, regulate the expansion of slavery um, in, in various ways. Right? So not just does this happen, because obviously the Missouri Compromise regulated slavery, um, but he wants to show that this was what the founders always believed. And then he also, he has the line he says, he repeats it several times in the speech, is the proper division of local and federal authority, quote unquote, the local proper division of local and federal authority guarantees the right of Congress to, to interfere with slavery, right? So that's his main argument here, that the founders, the framers believed that slavery could be interfered with, right? So he kind of, he has some um, repetition here where he repeats a line where he says, like, they interfered with it, they, they, they regulated it, they, 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 they kind of affected it, right? States did not have an absolute right to do whatever they wanted with slavery, right? So that's the point he's been making, but he makes it so convincingly here with really point-by-point point logic and research. Like, you really can tell he, he kind of really went law by law throughout, you know, American history, found these guys' names and find out what laws they, they, they signed for or, you know, which things they passed unanimously without opposition, and he, the argument is if they thought these were wrong, they would have said so. You know, these were brave men, you know, that, that were revolutionaries who founded the government. If they really believed that some things Congress was doing later were interfering with uh, fund, what the, the belief in the Constitution was, you know, what they believed the Constitution was about, they would have said something. They would have, they would have spoke up. So here's how Lincoln sort of sums it up. This is it's quite a bit into the speech already, um, but it sums up that kind of first part where he's arguing about the, the framers. Quote, it is safe surely to assume that the 39 framers of the original constitution and the 76 members of the Congress, which framed the amendments thereto, taken together do certainly include those who may fairly be called our fathers who framed the government under which we live. And so assuming I defy any man to show that any one of them in his whole life declared that in his understanding, any proper division of local from federal authority or any part of the constitution forbade the federal government to control as to slavery in the federal territories. I go a step further. I defy anyone to show that any living man in the whole world ever did prior to the beginning of the present century. And I might almost say prior to the beginning of the last half of the present century, declare that in his understanding, any proper division of local from federal authority or any part of the Constitution forbade the federal government to control as to slavery in the federal territories. To those who now declare, I give not only our fathers who framed the government under which we live, but with them all other living men within the century in which it was framed, among whom to search, and they shall not be able to find evidence of a single man agreeing with them, end quote. So what he's trying to say here is there's something new here. There's a change in attitudes uh, in the last 10 years, really, since the Compromise of 1850, since the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the Dred Scott decision that changed this attitude, that started creating this myth that the Constitution did not allow interference with 
with the existence of slavery in the territory. Lincoln actually goes a little bit farther, suggesting that there is even ground to say that there is, you know, some constitutional right to regulate and interfere with slavery, maybe in the southern states. He doesn't want to push that, though. He's focusing on the territories here because he doesn't want it to expand. That's the fight he wants to have. Um, but he's really, foc- you know, it's that, that. There's nothing in that history that shows that. And what's the evidence? Well, the evidence is, of course, the Northwest Ordinance, right, which forbade slavery in the territory pretty clearly. I mean, that, that could end the argument right there. That, that, but he goes farther. He talks about the abolition of the slave trade in 1808. Of course, that was uh, a right given Congress in, in the Constitution. Uh, they were forbidden from interfering with the slave trade until 1808, but as soon as 1808 came, um, it was passed. I think that law was passed in 1807, actually, uh, during Jefferson's presidency. Um, and he goes through all these names. So if you read this speech, he actually follows certain people. as they, they're, they're at the Constitutional Convention. Later on, they were in Congress, maybe they're in the first Congress or later ones. Every time, up to even the Missouri Compromise, he's able to find these people who sat at the Constitutional Convention and interfered with slavery during their political career. Right? So anyways, what do you have? Well, what you have, the, I guess the one thing he has to kind of justify and explain is why were there any new slave states at all? Why wasn't slavery just stopped at the original 13 colonies where it existed, right? Why was it allowed to spread to the West? Well, the answer to that he, he gives here, um, and this is actually just, just history. You don't need Lincoln to tell us this, but... Um, you know, of course, most of the Northwest Territory was ceded from by Virginia, right? And and you know, the Northwest Ordinance forbade slavery there. Well, what about south of the Ohio River, right? Well, I don't know so much about Kentucky. I, I think he doesn't talk about Kentucky, but I think Kentucky was, of course, the first state after Vermont to join the Union, and and I'm not sure the history of how slavery got there, but the territory that North Carolina seated right this became the state of tennessee right and then you had all the the states that became alabama and 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 mississippi were seated by by georgia all right the state of georgia now they seated it on the condition that slavery would not be interfered with right so congress you know basically made a deal with these states that this territory would be handed over but you know slavery would not be interfered with there so congress still had the right to interfere but they they, cho- they chose not to in that case Right now, Louisiana, Louisiana had a long history of slavery, right? And when it was acquired, there was slavery already existing there, right? So Lincoln's got this argument here that we're not going to interfere with slavery where it existed or where it exists due to historical kind of circumstances, right? That's a that's we deal with that later, right? Right now, it's about not expanding slavery. But the the rest of Louisiana, not the state of Louisiana itself, but the rest of the Louisiana Purchase, what about there? That those places? Well. The Missouri Compromise, right, says north of this line, most of the, most of it, basically only the state of Arkansas um, was below that line, would be free, right? Or there would not be slavery there. So he goes through point by point all these, all these laws that were passed regulating, interfering with slavery, and he keeps repeating, they interfered. And, and I think that repetition here, the repetition of certain phrases is part of what makes this speech very powerful and, and memorable. Anyways, once Lincoln established all this, it's it's an easy question to ask. Like, who is the real radicals here? Who is more, um, who is more outside of the mainstream of American political thought? The Democrats who are trying to disrupt the union and, and change this long precedent, or the Republicans who are more in sync with the framers, right? So, 
that's that's kind of where that was that opening quote I gave you at the beginning, where he's basically saying the Republicans are the ones sticking to the tradition, where they're the real traditionalists, or the real conservatives, right? And who's the real radical? Now, there's a middle section where he deals with what has by this point, by 1860, become a complication in this debate, and that is is the John Brown raid and and slave rebellion overall, and and it's not. You know, it's it's a it, Lincoln's in a tough spot, right? Because one of the arguments against kind of the abolitionist cause and even the free soil cause is is the violence that that emerged. You had, of course, the violence in Kansas between pro-slavery and anti-slavery forces. That was, you know, on both sides, right? But John Brown's trying to start a slave revolt, right? Um, by marching to the south, getting some weapons from the federal arsenal, and then you know hopefully distribute them to slaves. I mean, John Brown went so far as actually to write a constitution for a free republic that'd be emerged after the slaves had the rebellion, right? You know the John Brown story. We should probably um, uh, review that at some point. I don't, you know, there's never going to be a volume of John Brown's writings. I don't think I don't. there's enough for a whole collection. But, um, you know, maybe somewhere in the Library of America we, we can find some of John Brown's writings and, and think about them. Um, at some point, maybe in the, the I think they have a five volume collection on the Civil War. They, they might have some. No, John Brown would have been executed by then. So I don't think they're there either. But anyways, um, you know, at some point, maybe we should think about the, the Constitution that John Brown wrote. Right. And, and Frederick Douglass was supportive of this. So it wasn't a, a crazy off the wall you know, movement. And of course, that's how Lincoln has to frame it, though. Lincoln has to detach himself from John Brown, right? And from slave rebellion overall. And so what Lincoln says is there's never going to be a slave revolt in the South, right? And that John Brown was not a Republican and John Brown was a bit of a kook. So he, he kind of supports or, or contributes to this narrative of John Brown being essentially a crazy guy. Here's what he says. You charge that we stir up insurrections among your slaves. We deny it. And where's your proof? Harper's Ferry? John Brown? John Brown was no Republican. And you have failed to implicate a single Republican in his Harper Ferry enterprise. If any member of our party is guilty in that matter, you know it or you do not know it. If you do know it, you're inexcusable for not designing the man and proving the fact. If you do not know it, you're inexcusable for asserting it, and especially in persisting in the assertion assertion after you've tried and failed to make a proof um but you know he it's easy enough to say well we, you know john brown's not one of us not a republican but he goes further to say that basically slave revolts aren't going to happen in the south and then there's not a huge number of slave revolts and but i think there's a misconception about this you know you look at san domingue you look at haiti so they had a slave revolt why didn't you have one in in the u.s um of course in colonial british north america you had a few a few slave revolts. The most important being the Stonewall Rebellion in South Carolina. Um, um, you know, the fact that you didn't have slave rebellions doesn't mean you didn't have slave resistance, right? That's a distinction I want to make here. And Lincoln actually acknowledges this. He says you'll have sometimes arson or, or poisoning or things like that. That's not you're not going to have a slave revolt. You don't have to worry about that, right? And the Republicans aren't going to foment it or push that, right? If slavery dies, it's going to be in some other other way. Uh, he actually says here, John Brown's effort was peculiar. It was not a slave insurrection. It was an attempt by white men to get up a revolt among slaves in which the slaves refused to participate. In fact, it was so absurd that the slaves with all their ignorance saw plainly enough that it could not succeed. Now, Lincoln does say here a little bit about, you know, kind of revolutionary strategy almost. I don't know if he ever studied it. Um, if you ever read uh, 
uh, Robert Heinlein's novel, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, there's a whole conversation there about the proper way to establish cells in a revolutionary movement. And the ideal size is three, because any more than three, you're going to have people who you're going to lose um, security. Your security culture will be compromised, right? You know, three people is the ideal amount. But then how do you have a network, right? Well, you make sure any one person can't identify too many others, right? So you have secret connections between them. Anyways, it's all described in in the, that, that novel, right? And I think it comes out of actual theory that's been done on this through looking at successful revolutionary movements in history. Um, and Lincoln sort of says here, a slave rule couldn't work because you'd always have conflicted loyalties. You'd have slaves that were loyal, slaves that would inform on that. And he actually has historical evidence of slave revolts that failed because there was informants. Um, so he's, he's got some evidence to back this up. Um, but what this doesn't show is that slaves were kind of passive, right? Slaves in the United States were able to resist. They ran away. They formed into their own culture. They formed their own communities. And the biggest evidence that slaves don't want to be slaves is that when given the opportunity, they did essentially rebel, right? That they happened during the American Revolution and even more so during the Civil War. So much of what we got to talk about in the upcoming episodes is how Lincoln moved to emancipation and, and what role did black people play in, in pushing along that uh, transition in Lincoln's thought. He, start, he starts the war, Lincoln says, and I'm not going to interfere with slavery in the South. I'm going to end the war without ending slavery, preserve the Union without ending slavery. Right, but by by within a couple years, really less than less than two years, he decides no, I, you know, emancipation is the means to win the war. Uh, that was pushed in part by slaves themselves. Right, so I don't know if you want to call that a slave revolt. I, I sort of do. I, I I think you had, I think about a million slaves ran away. About a quarter of the slave population in the Confederacy ran away, uh, and many put on the uniform and came back as liberators. So that seems to me to be a slave revolt. Um, but, you know, there's an interesting passage here where he talks about slave rebellion and distance the Republican Party from that. Um, now, how does he end the Cooper Union address? Well, he returns. The last part's like addressed more to Republicans in the audience, kind of a what are we going to do now kind of speech. And he focuses on the morality of slavery, just like he did at the end of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, where he said, let's really focus on the morality of slavery and make that our foundation of, of argument. We'll talk about what to do about slavery where it exists later, right? But once we declare it as wrong, it's easy to say we shouldn't spread it, right? He writes in his speech, for instance, nor can we justify we hold this on any ground save our conviction that slavery is wrong. If slavery is right, all words, acts, laws, and constitutions against it are themselves wrong and should be silenced and swept away. If it is right, we cannot justly object to its nationality, its universality. If it is wrong, then we cannot justly insist on the extension by enlargement. All we ask, all we readily grant if we thought slavery was right. All we ask, they could as readily grant if they thought it wrong. They're thinking it right, and our thinking it wrong is precisely is the precise fact that which, which depends the whole con controversy. So a really nice summation of the, of the problem and how a Republican basically has, has to see slavery as wrong for their entire position on its expansion to, to hold up. His ending is also quite great, where um, he kind of he ends with a very bold kind of call to arms, almost. "Quote: Let 
Neither let us be slandered from our duty by false accusations against us, nor frightened from it by menaces of destruction to the government, nor of dungeons, dun dungeons to ourselves. Let us have faith that right makes right, and in that faith let us to the end dare to do our duty as we understand it. Um, really a, a revolutionary call to arms here, where you know, he doesn't quite say put our, our, our life, our property, our sacred honor on the line like the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, but he gets closer, right? Let us not be frightened from it by the menaces of destruction to the government, nor of dungeons to ourselves. And so he's basically saying, you know, if, if we're wrong and we lose, you know, or if we, if, if even if we're right and we lose, right, the, the fate might be dungeons, right? Or it might be that the union doesn't survive, right? But I mean, that's, I think it's significant given what happened, of course, and at the end of the year. So that's the, um, that's the Cooper Union speech, a really great summation of Lincoln's political thought at this time and, uh, and a great rallying speech that, that really helped lift him to national prominence even more so than, than, than before. There's a very similar speech he gave uh, not long after at New Haven, Connecticut, um, March 6th. Um, some of it's word for word copied from the Cooper Union speech. You know, it's a kind of a stump speech. Uh, like the conclusion is, is word for word the same. So I don't have to go over, over it again, but it's, it's a similar speech. There's the Cooper Union speech. But I, I do think the Cooper Union was just better. It's, 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 it's um, a powerful one. And there's a reenactment of it on, online that you can watch. Okay. Um, what else here? Um, well, let me say this. Uh, there, there's a few documents here that talk about some of the other political issues. Um, at play. Obviously, the core issue in the in the election was slavery in the territories, but it wasn't the only one. And for instance, he writes uh, a letter to a guy named Edward Wallace on, on May 12th, where he talks about the tariff. And he basically, of course, he supports the Republican platform, which included the, the tariff and other things. So, you know, as a candidate, he's not a candidate yet, actually. It's, it's, it's still, I guess, the... the it, to the degree they had primaries, right? It's still the primary season in May, on May 12th, you know. But he thinks the tariff question should not be a focus. He, he, he really wants to, I think, focus on, on the morality of slavery as the rallying point. Um, he writes this to Edward Wallace. In the days of Henry Clay, I was a Henry Clay tariff man, and my views have undergone no material change upon that subject. I now think the tariff question ought not to be agitated in the Chicago Convention. But that all should be satisfied on that point with the presidential candidate whose antecedents give assurance that he would neither seek to force a tariff law by executive influence, nor yet to arrest a reasonable one by veto or otherwise. Just such a candidate I desire should be put into nomination. I really have no objection to those views being publicly known. Unquote. So he's, he's calling for a moderation on the tariff issue, essentially. Like, don't be, you know, don't veto a tariff law. Don't push it through, through purely through executive powers. And don't make it an issue in the in the election, right? Even though he's saying I support the tariff, so um, you know it seems it seems kind of irrelevant given the the drama of the war. But there are other things government did during the Civil War, like the Homestead Act, for instance, was a big important piece of legislation. Um, we got a nice little document here, which is his autobiography, which it says here autobiography written for a campaign. I, you know, he didn't give speeches. That was not the way they did it back then. But apparently he wrote this autobiography. I don't know if that was common. I, I assume it was. But it's it's what you kind of would expect from a political campaign document. Really light on policy. 
a lot of pathos about his past, his his heroism, his participation in the Black Hawk War, raising a log cabin, the the heritage, the family, uh, the, you know, all his his you know his ancestors and his current family. That's mostly what it's about. It's it's to get to know Lincoln, right? That's the kind of document it it is. You know, I guess what what fits that role now? I guess like um, the wives of candidates during convention speeches during conventions kind of do that you know give you the the domestic side of these these people right so very the only one thing on te- in this whole document though it's, it's only 10 pages or so but there's only one thing where it really talks about policy and the thing he he feels the need to justify is his opposition to the mexican war right um and i think that was something that even douglas hit him on during the lincoln douglas debates like well he like didn't vote for he didn't support the troops right that the old the old and persistent way to attack someone for who opposes the war is that they don't also, you know, they oppose the troops, right? Now, apparently, Lincoln said he always voted for funding for the troops, but opposed the war. So that's the one policy issue that he mentions here, um, but largely because he's trying to give some explanation of what he did in Congress, and that was during the Mexican War. That was a big issue in Congress. But here's what he writes. Mr. Lincoln thought the act of sending an armed force among the Mexicans was unnecessary in so much as Mexico was in no way molesting or menacing the U.S. or the people thereof, and that it was unconstitutional because of the power of levying wars vested in Congress and on the president. He thought that the principal motive for the act was to divert public attention from the surrender of 54-40 or fight to Great Britain on the Oregon boundary question. So that's what he says, where he sort of justifies his, his vote or his opposition to the Mexican War. Um, but it, it, it's important enough that it's something that he thought he had to talk about in this particular document. Now, I don't know how widespread this was, how, how, how much it got around, but kind of a, a little personal campaign um, document. Kind of nice. All right. Um, October 19, 1860. This next document I want to look at. So a short little letter to an 11-year-old girl named Grace Bettle. Uh, if you remember when we were talking about the Lincoln-Douglas debates, I complained that a couple of the reenactors of the, the C-SPAN series of the, doing the reenactments, C-SPAN didn't do those reenactments. It was the local governments that, that put those on, but uh, you know it was aired by C-SPAN. Um, but I think two of them used bearded Lincoln in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And that kind of bothered me as a, kind of, as, a, as a bit of a creative anachronism. Um, because Lincoln didn't have a, a beard until the end of the year in 1860, right? And then, of course, throughout his presidency, he had it. Where did he get, the, why did he decide to have this beard? Well, it's, the story is, and this is a bit romanticized to be sure, um, but he got a letter from this girl, Grace Bettle. We don't have it here, but you can find it online. And basically, Lincoln passed through town and she wrote a letter to, to Lincoln, basically asking about his family life and then saying, you know, I, I can't vote, you know, but, and the women, we can't vote. We all like you, but we can get our men to vote for you, you know, but if you got a beard, we'd be more likely to vote for you or support you. Something like that is what she said, because your face is too thin, she said. She's a, she's a bold, uh, impressive young, young woman, you know, telling this future president that his face is a little too, too thin and sparse and, and could use a beard. Um, and Lincoln writes back. He, he responds to her. And it's a very, he, this is what he writes. It's a very short letter. I regret the necessity of saying I have no daughters. I have three sons, 117, 19, 17 years of age. They are with their mother, constitute my whole family. As to the whiskers, having never worn any, do you not think people would call it a piece of silly affection if I were to begin it now? 
You're very sincere well-wisher. Now, he sort of says, I'm not going to, you know, it's kind of, it'd be kind of pretentious for me to get the beard now. But he starts, he starts growing the beard not long after, right? And by election day, he's, his beard's growing out. And you can actually see the pictures if you, I think you can search Grace Battle or something, or Lincoln's beard on YouTube or on, on Wikipedia, and you can find, um, you know, the pictures of, of when he just had, like, he just started growing the beard. Kind of interesting. I never saw that picture before. So Grace Buttle wrote him another letter sometime during the war where she tried to get a job for herself in the Treasury Department, I think cutting greenbacks, cutting paper currency or something. And, and I don't know if she, I guess she didn't get the job. I didn't see anything saying she did or if Lincoln ever got that letter. But, you know, Lincoln was busy during the war. Um, now, there's also an anecdotal meeting um, sometime during the campaign. By the time Lincoln already had the beard, I think it was on his when he was crossing the country from Springfield to to Washington um, before, you know, before he got to Washington and before the first inaugural, he meets Grace Bettle. Now he's president-elect and, and gets to share a few words with her at some kind of rally or some kind of little speech he gave. We'll talk about those speeches a little bit next time. So anyways, it's a nice little story. It's about, it was about Lincoln's beard, if you didn't know it. Um, now, the other thing to say about this is what, now, once Lincoln was elected, Right. The southern states immediately talk about secession, uh, especially the deep south. So South Carolina is first in December. So they wait a month before seceding. Now, there's a great little book, and I forgot the name of it, that summarized that actually looked at the conventions and the, and the, and the writings around this, the, the, the conventions in the south. Um, now, there's a lot of debate about how democratic these were. Most I think people think these were basically minority movements to basically overthrow these state governments um, through rapidly pushed through conventions. Um, but this little book I'm talking about, it actually looks at the rhetoric and the language surrounding these debates. And certainly there's a lot to say they, they, they thought Lincoln was not trustworthy based on what he said in the Lincoln-Douglas debates or his other public statements. Um, and they couldn't tolerate a Republican president. And of course, as I looked at the numbers earlier on this episode, I you know, it wasn't clear that a, a pro-slavery or slaveholding candidate, a Southern candidate, could ever win the presidency again. Right? Look at the population shift. So, uh, this being intolerable, he they 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 secede. But the rhetoric of these conventions deal with wrought with race and a lot of fear about about you know free blacks and 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 what that will do to their culture and their society and their economic system. And a lot of it was pretty racial, a racially tainted language about, you know, race mixing and, and you know, the, the protecting white women from, from black people, all this really nasty racist language. And I forgot the name of the book, but it's a very short book that, that kind of just looks at these conventions. Of course, um, I want to get the exact um, date correct for you. The South Carolina secedes um, December 20th, right? Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas follow within two months. So that's before the lame duck period is over, before Lincoln is, is sworn in. And of course, the border states, and I, and I want to say the border states, I mean Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas. What am I missing? Virginia. What is it? I mean, I'm... North Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Virginia secede after Fort Sumter, after fighting begins. 
to make the, the Confederacy, right? The border states never secede. Um, but those, they, they, they don't wait long. That's the point, right? Just a month after the election, South Carolina secedes and the other states quickly follow um, in these what seem to be minority coups, um, political coups to overthrow those state governments, the loyal state governments. Um, but what is, how's, what is Lincoln saying about these southern states? Well, you know, pro, you know, between his election and and the end of the year, he gives a lot of basically guarantees to southern states. That's his strategy here, right? Guaranteeing the protection of slavery in in the southern states. For instance, in um, in a passage written for so this is like he's being Lyman Trumbull's speechwriter. He's, he's like his notes for Lyman Trumbull in one of his speeches. He says, um, I've labored in and for the Republican organization with entire confidence that whatever it sh whenever it should be empowered, each and all the states will be left as a complete control of their own affairs, respectively, and at perfect liberty to choose and employ their own means of protecting property, preserving peace and order within their respective limits, as they have been under any administration. Those who have voted for Mr. Lincoln have expected and still expect this, and they would not have voted for him had they expected otherwise. So this is Lincoln's words, but it would have come up and it would come out of Lyman Trumbull's mouth, right? And a lot of his other statements have that same kind of language. So he's giving these guarantees to the southern states. Obviously, it's what you'd expect, right? He didn't want the union to be broken up, but he has his limits. He's, a li he's there's limits to his compromise here, and this is also this is a letter to Lyman Trumbull, a private and confidential letter. He writes to Lyman Trumbull, "Let there be no compromise on the question of extending slavery." If there be, all our labors lost and ere long must be done again. The dangerous ground that into which some of our friends have been hankering to run is popular sovereignty. Have none of it, stand firm. The tug has to come, and better now than any time hereafter. So although he's somewhat accommodating to Southern fears and responding to them, he, is, he does have his, his, his uh, line in the sand. Um, yeah, I think that's it. William Stewart gets appointed... State Department in one of these letters um, after the election, but there, there's a handful of different uh, letters here that you can peruse. I, I don't have time or the interest in talking about all of these, but um, that's 1860. I think the most important document here is the Cooper Union speech, um, but there's some other interesting things um, that we can identify. Um, so next episode, next episode, 1861, of course, and and so we got the first inaugural. We got um, his speeches that he gives on the way to Washington and uh, Fort Sumter and starting to fighting, right? And, and the war. So a lot to talk about in 1861. I, I don't know how long it'll take me to do these upcoming episodes, especially the next four, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, so if you're reading along, you can, you know, review the second inaugural, first inaugural, I mean, review some of the speeches he gave on the way to Washington um, and perhaps think about the the slavery issue. To what degree did um, enslaved men and women challenge uh, Lincoln's policy on on slavery, right? And and all that. He's got some special messages to Congress here too. His State of the Unions, uh, his his effort to to keep Virginia in the Union. All these kinds of things are, are in 1861, a big important year in American history, of course. Um, so that's next. Um, I look forward to talking about that stuff with you. Um, 
next time. Um, anyways, uh, thanks for listening. And if you have any of your own comments or thoughts about the Cooper Union speech or any of these documents, please uh, feel free to leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Our rail maker statesman can do The people are everywhere calling For Lincoln and Liberty too Then up with a banner so glorious The star-spangled red, white, and blue We'll fight till our banner